listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Hi, Jeff. It is February 1st, which means it is time to go behind the headlines, as we like to do, or as we're starting to do. I guess this is only the second time we've done it, so I shouldn't claim we've done it a million times. Let's go behind the headlines. You know, when you say that, it just made me think, I've always loved news talk shows. I mean, growing up as a kid, this is going to sound really weird, but I always loved This Week with David Brinkley. Really? Oh, I, I, I don't know what it is. I think that show has gone downhill significantly, but then everything has in my mind because I'm a curmudgeon. But I, I kind of get to live out that fantasy a little today. You know, I, I had that period of my life too. I used to love watching Tim Russett meet the press. That was like my favorite thing to watch every week. I'd look forward to that when I was in my 20s on Sunday morning watching meet the press. I don't like the current host as much as I liked Tim, but I kind of lost interest. But I know what you mean. Like, it's like, I, I loved watching kind of like that, that, that's a little more aggressive, I guess, because he likes to, or he always liked to attack people. <laughs> it wasn't really a talk show as much as it was an attack zone. Hopefully we're not going to do that. All right, so let's jump in. Well, we're going to do this a little differently than last time. Last time we went really deep on one article, the news about the EY split and what it meant, the implications. This time we've got three or four articles teed up that we want to talk about. So why don't you kick us off with the first piece, which actually is not really news as much as it's opinion, but I think it's interesting nonetheless. I think this is a perennial news or opinion piece. This particular one showed up in Bloomberg. And it was a commentary on the management consulting space and McKinsey in particular. And the author speculated that the industry of management consulting had grown so large and has an outsized influence on business and society. And we thought it was really interesting for a number of reasons that firms should be attuned to these type of of stories because things like this tend to cascade down through an industry and have multiple implications on brands, sales, and delivery. Yeah, I thought the headline was really telling in the sense, well, there were two things in the headline that grabbed my attention. One was, you know, so the headline is actually McKinsey's missteps point to an industry-wide mess. And I think that the the feeder headline into that actually talked about an industry reckoning. And I thought what was interesting was, you know, obviously the article speaks to, it ends up being a little bit of a synopsis of some of the stuff that showed up in the, the book when McKinsey comes to town, which I haven't, I have to, full disclosure, I haven't read, I, I doubt I will. But then he extrapolated out to make it much bigger than one firm and, and, and much bigger than one scandal or whatever, and basically made a case for sort of like systemic problems that the consulting industry puts on society <laughs> and compares the consulting industry, I think, to the World Economic Forum or something along those lines. So these, you know, classic conspiracy theorist groups. I don't know. What was, what was your take? I, I guess the essence of the article, it, it's, it's sort of asking you, the reader, the question, is the consulting industry good or bad? I think you said that when we set this up. And is there a systemic problem in place? Are consulting firms, he uses the phrase infantilizing companies and industries, this idea that they're sort of imposing best practices on their clients and their clients are sort of helpless victims is almost how it comes off, I guess. So, you know, did you have the same take or same read on it? Yes. I think that is a fair criticism of the industry and particularly those big consultancies and those big companies. Okay. I, I believe firms 
like McKinsey feed off the insecurities of executives to some degree, but they feed off the, I'm using air quotes, necessity of executives covering their asses, okay. of being able to pass the buck, and they exploit that. I would say they exploit FOMO as well for executives, you know, the fear of missing out on the next hot trend. And that article actually talked about a couple of those trends as well. One was ESG, the other one yep. was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm not sure it might've had climate change in there as well. Yep. And we actually did a three-part series on ESG. <laughs> Thanks to you, by the way, as you yeah, know, and, I, when and, you want to do it, I was like, of some of the implications of, of wading into those, those waters. Yeah. And the article points out some of the hypocrisy within the consulting industry around DEI and their business model, the pyramid in particular. Mm. Yeah, that's a stupid reading on it too. I, he also talked about sort of what, to your point, the hypocrisy that, that some firms have relative to the outward stance they take on issues and then where they actually generate revenue, the businesses some of their clients are in. You know, one thing that jumped out to me, and I'm going to turn left a little bit, which I thought was interesting, you know, he talks about this notion of infantilizing clients and, uh, and you know, delivering and providing best practices. I, I think what's interesting about it that I wonder how how much he knows about where best practices come from. Because as you know, we learned this directly. We, you know, we heard this directly in the episode that might release around this time that we did with Matt Dixon you know, best practices are almost always discovered. They're already happening inside of clients somewhere and the best consulting firms discover them and then essentially share them. So it's not like the consulting firm is imposing these things. It's more companies already doing them and they and they discover them and then they sort of codify them and, and share them elsewhere. So it's to me, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding of what best practices really are and sort of how consulting firms derive their models. It was an interesting read. It definitely turned my ear. I was like, wait a minute, what, what's what? You know, so it made me grab my attention. And it, it's, I think it's worth reading as a consulting firm leader because it does make you step back and say, okay, what is the perception of us as an industry? And, and what do we need to do differently as a firm maybe to you know, affect the perception in a positive way? Because it does matter. I think the implications for the, the next tiers of firms when they read the article, I would hope they would see some things that are vitally important to building a, a firm's legacy. The first one is, is your firm falling prey to a greed mentality where it's growth for growth's sake and you do anything to get growth and keep up with the industry, if you will. And I talk about this regularly about, you know, high performance is growing faster and more profitably than the industry average, right? So I pontificate on that. But I think yeah. there's a rationale for that growth beyond just greed, right? Growth provides opportunities for people and, yeah. and profit and investment. So it's important. And I think managing partners need to ask themselves, have we fallen out of balance in that regard? You know, I want to piggyback what you said just briefly. Jay Lobbs was so good at articulating that when he was on with us about, I mean, he's a high growth in every firm he's ever run, but he does it for, has very purposeful reasons for why he's pursuing that growth. To your point, it's not just an economic thing. There's a whole bunch of other things around that. So keep going. Sorry. 
So I, I think a second implication is, have you structured your firm in a way that could jeopardize the very core value of integrity in your firm? Yeah. The article talked about how so many of these modern day consultancies have moved away from partnerships where there was a more direct link to liability to different corporate structures that shield them from that risk. Has your corporate structure allowed you to become lax in terms of your personal accountability to all the stakeholders of an organization? I think it's critical because this is just human nature. When you remove risk associated with a behavior, you're going to get more of that behavior. And as, as leaders, we need to make sure that's not happening. Yeah, that's a really great point. It's, it's a, in essence, you know, have, is your culture and your organizational structure somehow delivering unintended bad behaviors that you didn't want nor expect? And then I, I think the last one, and the article referred to this as well, is your organization at a stage in its life cycle that it has moved well beyond the founder's original vision and intention, where you have moved from that personal connection to the firm to professional managers who have a different perspective on what the purpose of the firm is. And I think so many of these firms have hit that point. And that's the danger point in my mind. The article talked about Marvin Bauer and what would Marvin Bauer, who was the man who transformed yeah. McKinsey into the, the global behemoth that it is, what would he be thinking or doing today? And selling your soul for growth is probably not something he would be doing. And I think it's important for organizations to always keep thinking about who we are and how does it compare to who we were. And who we want to be, right? Like, yes. You know, yeah. there's an arc of those things. Wonderful points. I couldn't agree more. I mean, really, really interesting. Okay. So guys, read that article. It's a, yeah. it's a good one. And it's a great catalyst for self-reflection about where you are, who you want to be, and what it's going to take to either stay or get there. All right, headline number two. So this one is more of a news piece from the journal. And the headline is more companies are hiring CMOs with performance marketing backgrounds. This is definitely more about CMOs and consumer marketing organizations, but I would argue that most of what you see in this certainly is going to you know, bleed into B2B marketing, professional services marketing, if it hasn't already. So you want to give the gist of the article or you want me to? You go ahead and give the gist. Yeah, so the gist is basically that, you know, right now in the current economic environment, companies, when they're hiring CMOs or senior marketing leaders are, you know, favoring candidates that have a performance marketing background. And I would describe that as people who have both sort of a combination of deep and broad digital experience. So they've come out of some narrow domain of digital, SEO, SEM, digital advertising, lead gen, conversion optimization, and something that's sort of like technical and narrow but then they've sort of built that out to have a broader digital purview of everything going on. There was some interesting data in there. I think nine, one, one search uh, exec said nine of 10 searches for senior execs are for that. You know, they said demand for talent in this domain is so high that candidates are interviewing for four jobs at once. 
Now, the parry to that would be sort of like in the consumer world would be brand-oriented marketers. So folks that maybe kind of have a more, a broader, more analog, traditional view of building a brand versus driving a lead or a sale into the funnel directly through a digital activity. And that those skill sets are sort of less valued right now. I have an opinion of how that relates to professional services firms. You may disagree with me. So my, my opinion is that the layer I would put on top of that for a professional services firm is it's the idea of long-term oriented activities. So which I would argue is more like thought leadership development, the one part of brand building that marketing can essentially influence the most versus short-term oriented activities. So digital things, whether it's you know running lead gen campaigns or SEO programs or SEM programs, things that are a little more tactical, a little more specific, and a little more driven about driving individual people into a funnel or of some sort. I think that's the context here. And so if you were to, to parry this to a professional services firm, it, it would be saying that professional services firms would be sort of prioritizing those digital skills over maybe the longer term skills. I don't know that that's true. I just, that's, that would be the, the relationship that I would have on it. So let me pause. You know, why does this matter? So maybe, maybe you can comment on it. Why does this matter? I picked the article, but why, why does it matter? I'd like to hear uh, you talk about it a little bit. You know, as I read, I thought, this is a silly damn article. <laughs> and I thought, well, is that really fair, Jeff? I thought it was a silly damn article because it was so self-evident in my own arrogant mind. Yeah. And I thought to myself, Wall Street Journal, where have you been? Or industry, where have you been? Because as a CMO, I've always thought the best marketers combine both of these disciplines. Yeah. And that may be because of the industry I was in, professional services, but it just seems so self-evident. I mean, 20 years ago, as a CMO, I was looking, again, because it just resulted this way, that the best marketers were coming out of the digital realm. And they were the best marketers because those digital marketers are systems thinkers. They're big picture thinkers. They see the interconnections of the world around them and they bring this ethos of problem solving to what they do. And to me, those are the innate characteristics of a strategic CMO. And I never separated the brand from those digital activities, probably out of necessity, yeah. because the firms I, I was in didn't have these huge brand budgets. And each interaction, whether it was digital or it was relational, was a brick in the brand building that we were doing. Correct, correct. So I always saw them inextricably linked, and it just made perfect sense to me. And I can't imagine, well, I guess I can, but I, I can't imagine why anyone would think differently from that. So to me, it makes perfect sense. And I even write in the optimal marketing organization that thinking through, you know, what are the strategic objectives you're trying to achieve? What's your culture? What's your perception of marketing? And what contribution is it making to the strategic impact on the firm really is going to dictate the type of leader that you have. So I don't think, well, I think in professional services, if you're a girl's school, you need the combination of the two. But if you don't share that, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I think I saw it as more sort of direct to your point. I agree with everything you said, by the way, but I, I see it as more as almost some direct career advice for people right now, which is like, if, if you really still haven't embraced some digital 
aspect of your work, then you you probably should more, you know, that you should amp up your digital and performance skills. You should get a better, you know, if, if you're an editorial leader or a content leader in a firm, you should get a better handle on search and how it works and keyword analysis and what it means and SEM and how it works and a better handle on how the thought leadership you're developing is manifesting itself digitally and how you're delivering audience to it. You know, because I've just run into people in that job who don't see that as part of their role. And on the flip side of it, I think if you're a digital person and you're thinking in maybe shorter term time horizons, which you frequently do, you have to kind of understand the larger, to your point, I'm building bricks. I'm, I'm laying bricks for this bigger thing. What's that bigger thing? And so I think there's just some kind of like good insight into, you know, wherever you are in the org, you know, where, or in your career, where you probably need to build some skills to, to broaden yourself so you're more valuable in the bigger picture. I would add, if you're a CMO yeah. and there is threats and opportunities, depending on your size at your firm, the larger the firm you get, the more specialized you're going to be by definition. You mean in, in your job, your, in, in your, your skills. Job. Yes, yes. So those of you that want to grow in marketing, you want to make sure you don't get pigeonholed in some shared services function and you have a narrow <laughs> discipline. So like you had a little opinion of a shared services function there. So keep going. But, <laughs> but if you do have, if you're a CMO and you have a shared services model, yeah, your people development strategy should be formulated so that people are spending, you know, three to six months in this function and three to six months in that function. Yeah. And you're moving them around and you're developing well-rounded marketers instead of letting them yeah. get comfortable and really, 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 really deep in one discipline. I love that, by the way, that you brought this up because it's sort of in your best interest short-term to silo people and focus them on one thing they're really good at, but it's in your best interest long-term to do what you just said. And, you know, so I think that's really interesting. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. So the third one is an article about Salesforce. I'll read the headlines also in the journal. Salesforce's business model faces tests as Elliott management others weigh in. So I'll let you do the summary because I think you have a really good handle on this article conceptually about what it's about and what's going on. Boy, I'm not sure if I do. That Salesforce world is a crazy world. <laughs> I don't know anybody. Well, I guess I do know some people that understand it. We had Brendan Sullivan on talking about life and as a, a channel partner that is really good in helping understand this. And it's worth a listen. He's excellent. Essentially, you know, activist investors are coming to Salesforce and saying, hey, your growth is slowing. Your profits are slowing. You miss yep. expectations. What are you going to do? And what do firms normally do when they see stuff like that? They start cutting bodies. And so Salesforce even admitted that during the pandemic, they overhired in order to meet demand. And how can you fault them for that? Nobody knew how that was going to unfold as we accelerated transformation and digitization. I think this article is important, particularly to the channel partners. And a lot of my clients are channel partners. Yeah. 
within this ecosystem. And these types of decisions tend to cascade down. And I've already seen some of the implications in some of my clients because part of those layoffs were eliminating old MuleSoft people and okay. absorbing MuleSoft under the Salesforce banner. So MuleSoft is now officially, you know, yeah, it's under the bailiwick of the Salesforce sales team. And I think this has implications for the channel partners, and they're already feeling this because people they knew and trusted and associated with in the channel are disappearing. Okay. So it means they have to formulate new relationships. And those new relationships. Losing referral relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of these businesses are dependent on the referrals back and forth between these two. In my experience dealing with a Salesforce rep, they're high performance, they're demanding, they're measured very aggressively. And the expectations for the channel partners are going to evolve. Yeah. Right. The expectations for a channel partner are help us drive more revenue, get us more subscriptions, do better onboarding so that we can retain more of that revenue. And that's a lot of stuff to do for a channel partner, particularly when there's this constant upstream churn in Salesforce proper. You're trying to run a business down here on your own strategic objectives, but you have this partner who has an outsized weight on your business. It makes it really hard to stay focused. Yeah, you raise all kinds of super interesting points that I hadn't even thought about. I, I didn't really even think that much about some of those very direct channel relationship issues that it's going to create and how it's going to affect literally your your your, your daily performance, right? Now, all of a sudden, you know, there's a whole change. I mean, I mean, real quick, I mean, they, laid, they laid off 80,000 people, so 10% of the workforce. Hey, did I get that right? 80,000? 10%? 8,000. Yeah, 80,000. That's a giant company. 8,000 sounds better. The other implication that jumped out to me, there was some things interesting about what they're doing. This is what I find interesting is they said they're going to demand more from their salespeople. So to your point, you know, a, a company that I think most of us from the outside looking in would describe as pretty aggressive from a sales process, they're saying they're going to, you know, move out people that aren't performing, you know, and they're expanding their sales training. And they, they had a direct quote in there. It said, the COO said, we're going to have employees do more stand and deliver meetings to practice and hone sales pitches. It seems to me like they're like going to dial up the push and present culture that, of selling at Salesforce that's already in place. And what struck me as is is that, like you said, most people I know, we, they kind of laugh about that, right? Like it's like you're a little afraid to interact with Salesforce because you know that the push is coming at you real quickly if you do. You download a white paper, you know, here they come. So you're going to do more of that? So Anyway, I think the implication to me is like to your point around those channel partners is it's like there might be an opportunity to sort of do the opposite of some of that sort of be that wedge between this more aggressive Salesforce sales push and do some of the stuff that we talked about with Matt Dixon, you know, you know, some, some of the stuff we've talked about with Challenger Sale to be the consultant, to be the advisor, to help the client make better choices and not feel the pressure that's going to come at them, especially if an organization's already pretty aggressive and maybe gets more aggressive. So I thought that was interesting. You're spot on. Matt Dixon is going to be on a rocket ship, I think. <laughs> I think you're right. Because the market needs what Matt is offering. And I've seen this in my own clients where they're having those type of conversations where they're saying, stop, you don't want to do that. Yeah. Here are the repercussions of doing that. 
and we don't recommend it because those are devastating impacts to your business are really paying dividends. Yeah. So to I don't know. About, about Dixon being on a rocket ship, the other thing that I laughed about when I was reading it is I can just imagine customers in indecision mode and then Salesforce coming at them more aggressively to dial up the, you know, the FOMO, right? And, the, and, the, and it getting worse that their sales go backwards, you know? So it's like, no, I, I could be totally misreading it, but just the way I read those snippets of quotes in there, it felt like the direction they were taking on sales was kind of like not what we're hearing or talking about with all the people we had in that modern selling series. So I, I think there's another implication to this because it's cascading, not just down to the channel partners and, and consultants, but to the other SaaS firms as well. And so many of these channel partners are not singular Salesforce channel partners. They have relationships with other components that, you know, the full stack of a digital transformation. And I'm starting to see changes in those channel partner or in those channel. Yeah. Those partners and with implications on their channel partners, whether that's their mix of business moving from enterprise to small and mid-size or moving from retention to new logos. It's just a perennial change machine that's happening. And when you get an activist investor in there, it just puts it on steroids. Tells it up and <laughs> All right, let's hit this last one. We're going to chat about ChatGPT. I mean, we're a podcast. Everybody, that's the most important topic of the day right now, right? So we got to talk about ChatGPT. Why don't you start us out? You know, because you picked a specific article as a starting point, but to your point, I think that's just an entry point to the conversation. So yeah, boy, if you don't know what ChatGPT is, you're going to Google it right now. Get off the podcast and and go Google it. I'm sure you've heard of it. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's a new tool released by OpenAI, and it's setting, gosh, every industry and area of fire. Well, it's going to disrupt every company on the planet, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, academia, search. I've read some follow-on articles in the implications of this that were crazy. But before I get to those... So yep. chat GPT is artificial intelligence. You can ask it questions or ask it to produce composition or compilations as well. Computations. Compu 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 I don't know that word. Computations. Computations. Yeah, that was like mathematical sex coming out or something. <laughs> Computations. <laughs> but it's an incredibly powerful tool and it's going to get even more powerful. Yeah. So the flagship article that you hit on was was an article about chatbots and how so companies were using it for customer service or were planning to use it for customer service or use, you know, I think there's an API on it on the back end that they can tap into to, you know, bring it into, into their core products somehow. What do you think about that? Good, bad? And then we can start extrapolate out to other use cases perhaps. Is that the right question? Good, bad? Is there another uh, other other category? Uh, Neutral, sideways, caution, caution. Uh, I think there are definitely applications for it. Chat seems to be a good one, but chat about yeah. what? Yeah, right and where. I think in those industries that have clear rules based approaches and pretty repetitive questions answers, those types of things, it probably makes sense. Those 
chats that operate on a more personal and emotional level, more life impacting, I would suspect not yet. Yeah. But you know that it's going to be applied to that because everybody's looking for productivity increases. And the more places it get used, the more intelligent it's going to be. Yeah. You know, an idea that I've had for years that I've not seen anybody implement that I would love to see implemented is this idea of, you think about the thought leadership resource libraries of, of any mid to big firm. They're, they're overwhelmingly large. And as a learner, you know, as a client in a learning mode, trying to learn about a topic or, you know, explore something, it's overwhelming to figure out where to go. And I've always thought that a chat bot that could kind of direct you to, you know, resources that would help you learn would be incredibly valuable. You know, not a chat bot to start a conversation about working with the firm, but just to help me learn, help me to sift through all this noise to find something super valuable in this inventory of stuff. And it struck me as that would be an interesting use case because I've not seen anybody do it successfully or even try to do it. I just think that would be really interesting. That is an interesting application. Think about that. One of, I mean, my lifetime in professional services, one of the perennial challenges is knowledge management and accessing the full resources of the firm, particularly those large global firms. And the way you described it, it would point you to individual resources and say, hey, you might digest these things and, and learn from them. Something like chat GPT would actually go out to those resources and synthesize them for you. Yeah. So I don't even have to really do the quote unquote thinking and reading and pulling together of those things that chat GPT could do it for me. It's a valid point. I haven't even taken that extra mental leap, which is that to your point. And I think the fear of it, if you've, if for those of you who played with it, if you ask it a question and it spits out an answer, you don't really know where that came from. It's just random. But in this use case, you could obviously control it. You could say, we're only going to pull from our platform, you know? And so, you know, it's, it's coming from thinking that was developed and derived by your people. And it's interpreting that stuff and then doing it. Now, of course, maybe it can't function on that small of a level of learning knowledge. But yeah, I love that. That's You took it on the level that I hadn't even thought about. So let's think about the implications of that. Yeah. Let's say I'm a new McKinsey hire and I have access to McKinsey's chat GPT and I pose a question. This is going badly, I think. I don't know where it's going, but it's going to go bad. And it produces a white paper for me. And here is, you know, Jeff McKay, New McKinsey person's white paper, big thoughts on problem X. I'm not an expert at that, but I put that out into the market as an expert. What does that mean to a buyer and their trust for the McKinsey brand and me as an individual? How does a buyer know what expertise I actually have? Yeah it really becomes an opportunity for a thought leadership deep fate, if you will, to a large degree. And that's something I think that's going to have to be, be managed. I would argue, given that the three drivers of brand preference are expertise, results, and simpatico, that a tool like this is going to shift the weight of each one of those attributes to results. I want to see where these thoughts have actually taken place in action and produce the outcomes I'm I'm looking for. 
And I think personal relationship and, and trust is going to be even more important in the marketing of and selling of these brands because everybody is going to be an expert. Pretty soon, everybody's going to be sounding like everybody if they use this tool. And I read that, that Google is actually looking to modify its algorithm in order to discern copy that was produced by yeah. something like chat GPT and penalizing it in search results. How it does yeah. that, I have no idea, but they're already thinking that way because this tool could up and search uh, at least a big portion of search. What, yeah, and you think about like the part of search is also frequency and visibility, right? So if you're, you know, you want to be an expert on something, some of that is about publishing frequently about that. Well, you know, there are human limitations to to publishing frequency. And there's no artificial intelligence limitations to that. So companies could really get aggressive and start publishing, you know, obscene amounts of content that nobody can discern. So I saw an article, I just saw a headline or an email, I think it was from the, the content platform Zeris, Z-Z-E-R-Y-S, Zeris. And they took a big, strong stance saying that they weren't going to you know, that any content developer caught using AI to build a rough draft would be kicked out of their platform. So you basically would never get AI content from them. You'd only get human content. But I actually got the thinking, I was like, I don't think that's actually a good response at all. I mean, it's, it feels good in the moment, but it's sort of like saying, well, you're not allowed to use a search engine or something. It's just the next wave of technology. You can't artificially outlaw something and hope it's going to go away. And it's going to be there. It's going to be used. It's just a question of understanding you know, how it's the right way to use it and, and and what does that mean? So I guess my closing thought on it, and I'm sure you'll have more, is like, don't be afraid of it. Don't run away from it. Don't act like it doesn't exist, you know, but be curious and explore it a little bit and, and think about some use cases. But then I think to your point, which you said better than I would, understand the implications of, you might want to test something, but think through the permutations of what might play out that you didn't think about, you know, which actually goes full circle to where we started on this, this thing, I think a little bit. Yeah, I think the law of unintended circumstances is definitely at play here. My biggest concern with it is I'm not sure that our ethical and moral structure today has the necessary strength associated with this tool. And it's really going to challenge those institutional frameworks in a very head-on way. So I think as leaders, thinking about this tool and how it's used is just going to be absolutely critical to their firms. In what way? Do you think it's going to be a function of they need to be thinking about how it affects their business, what they sell and what they get paid to do, the integrity of their people and how they operate? And what's, I guess, what's really in, you know, in your head about it? And we'll go to wrap. Gosh, I haven't fully thought this through. I think on the, on the front end, in its most simplest form, would be cheating and what cheating looks like. It's, the tool's already been used and has passed the gene, I want to say the Wharton's MBA final. It, the, it, the final exam, it, if it you passed know, the final passed exam. It has passed some of the medical licensing exams and has even completed parts of the bar as well. And you know college students and high school students are using this to write papers. You know, who else is doing that? So I think that's kind of the front end. And then on the back end is this trust in the output that comes out of it, right? If we pose yeah. moral questions 
into an artificial intelligence and it produces said result, what does that mean to us in the institutions? I think that's something to really contemplate. That is very deep thoughts <laughs> to close on. <laughs> like the existential questions of life and society, uh, you know, so giving us some hard homework. I guess I'll just ask ChatGPT what it thinks. What does it think is the, the future of, of AI in society? Yeah, you should do that. All right, that's a wrap. Four headlines, behind four headlines, I guess. We'll include the actual links to the individual articles that inspired this conversation in the show notes. And Jeff, I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Look forward to doing this again. I had a lot of fun with this. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh.